0: From training to performing, join our big league conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 112. We're going to be hosting a new addition to the CSP Florida staff for this call. And it's a really fun one for me because this is a guy who started out as an athlete with us, then interned with us, and then went out and did his thing, did some really cool things uh, both in the strength conditioning and baseball world. And now he's just come back to join our team. And on a personal level, it's always super satisfying when you see someone that you know really takes their career and, and and does some amazing things with it after they were you know effectively a student with you back in the day and now he's here and he's teaching me new things each day and asking great questions and challenging us to be better and in a variety of ways so he's quickly become very very popular with both our athletes and our staff alike so i think we're in for a really cool show This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the most comprehensive NSF certified for sport daily nutritional supplement I've ever tried. With so many stressors in life, it's difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients they need to thrive. As a father of three young kids and a co-founder of multiple businesses in multiple states, on top of still being an avid exerciser, I know that busy schedules can really take their toll on us. Whether it's poor sleep, exercise or life stressors, environmental factors, or simply not eating enough of the right foods, we can wind up deficient nutritionally. This is where Athletic Greens can really help. It's a game-changing nutritional insurance policy. They simplify the logistics of getting optimal nutrition on a daily basis by giving you just one thing with all the best things. And that's why I use it daily and recommend it to our athletes. One scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, Green superfood blend, and more. They work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, increase energy and focus, aid in digestion, recovery, and supporting of a healthy immune system. This all can happen without taking multiple products. While most nutritional products come to market and stay stagnant, Athletic Greens continues to obsessively improve this one holistic formula based on the latest research, producing 53 improvements over the last decade. They invest in the most absorbable and natural source of each ingredient and go above and beyond in third-party testing to ensure their customers continue to receive the highest quality and best daily nutritional habit on the planet. It's lifestyle-friendly, whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, and contains less than one gram of sugar without compromising on taste. They put 75 ingredients to the NSF for sport certification to come up with a formula that's trusted by some of the world's best athletes, including our own. Right now, Athletic Greens is giving our listeners 10 free travel packets with their subscription. Simply go to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy to receive my offer. These travel packs are perfect for supporting your immune system, energy, and gut health when you're traveling for games, training, or simply when you're on the go. They can be a great counterbalance to less than ideal on-the-road food options. So if you want to bridge the gap between deficient and optimal and give yourself the best chance to get nutrient diversity, then head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy and get your 10 free travel packets today. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y. Today's guest was an athlete at CSP Massachusetts in 2014 while attending Emporia State University. At ESU, he was a vital part of the 2014 MIA Conference Championship team, as well as a participant in two NCAA Division II regional tournaments. Upon graduating with his BS in health and human performance, he spent the summer of 2015 interning at CSP Florida. At the conclusion of this internship, he began his professional career as the strength conditioning coach at Premier Baseball Kansas City. He now returns to CSP Florida as our new pitching coordinator, following a six-year run as the co-founder at Kansas City Strength and Conditioning, where he served as both the strength and conditioning coach and the director of pitching. While in Kansas City, he built a reputation for delivering both high-quality strength and conditioning protocols and high-level pitching instruction. During his tenure at KCSC, he was able to guide several athletes from the high school ranks into professional baseball. His thorough understanding of the human body gives him a unique lens to view pitching development through. He brings experience working with athletes of all ages and skill level. We're psyched to have Matt Hinckley as our new pitching coordinator at Cressy Sports Performance Florida. Welcome to the show, Matt. Yeah, Eric, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So we are January 24th in Jupiter, Florida. And it was like 38 degrees this morning when I woke up. You just moved here from Kansas City. Is this a shock for you? Do you think I'm, were we like selling you false bill of goods here? No, it's
1: funny. I actually, I was, I was talking with Tanner and Schoenberg earlier and I I was telling them, you know, I've been here for a little bit over a month now and. It didn't take me very long to turn into one of those Florida snowflakes because I'm I was freezing this morning. <laughs>
0: your, blood, your blood thins out quick, no doubt about it. It does. It didn't
1: take very long.
0: So. <laughs> well, now that we've kind of alluded to Kansas City, I think it's probably a good place to start. Let's let's talk about your roots. You know, so um, as I alluded to in the intro to the show, you were a CSP athlete before you were a, a CSP intern and now a CSP staff member. So maybe talk about your your path that led you to CSP um, all the way back during your college career, and then we'll we'll take it from there. For sure. So yeah, I started out
1: my, my collegiate baseball career at a, at a junior college called Hutch Junior College. It's in the middle of Kansas, middle of nowhere. It's actually, it was like going back in time, going to school there. It was just a little podunk Kansas town. And uh, I learned a lot about myself there, but I, I ended up transferring to Emporia State University, which is a, it's a division two school in the MIAA. So we were playing schools like Central Missouri who just got, you know, I think national runner up in division two, mm. um, it was a pretty stout conference for division two baseball. So it was a, it was good from a, a competition standpoint. Um, it was also good from a, a learning standpoint for me. And it's kind of took me a long time to appreciate it because from a, a strength conditioning or, you know, baseball development resource standpoint, they're, they're kind of balling on a budget for lack mm-hmm. of better term. So mm-hmm. it was, it was, uh, very humble beginnings as far as my formal, path to to csp so i was actually dealing with a little bit of arm trouble after my sophomore year and instead of of going to play summer ball i i jumped on the internet and and i googled baseball training and this is (laughs) dates it back to 2014 Mm -hmm. um but i jumped on on google did the the baseball search and up popped a video that you guys did it was actually an old like highlight reel of your first facility. Um, I believe like Tim Collins, dad was interviewed in the video. It's pretty like a retro video. Um, but at that point on, I kind of dove deeper into the website and just, it looked like something that, like what I was looking for. I was dealing with a little bit of arm troubles. So convinced my best friend, Jared, that it was what we needed to do that summer. And we ended up renting a place up in, uh, Jamaica Plain, downtown Boston. Right. I, I forgot know, about that. And drove <laughs> back and forth, uh, For essentially the entire summer, just fully immersed in training. And, uh, I've told this story a few times, but I actually, and I actually think it was Connor McNally that was an intern there at the time, but I think it was the fourth day. And at that point I had zero formal background in in strength, conditioning, kinesiology, pitching formally, um, at all. So I I walked up to Connor and I was like, Hey man, how do I do this? (laughs) Um, and he gave me a pretty short checklist of things to to walk through. The first one was just to express interest to you guys that I, I potentially want to get involved in the industry. Um, he also told me to just work really, really hard throughout my training programs. He, he mentioned that I was already getting interviewed and that kind of struck, stuck with me. Um, when I looked around the room, I think a lot of the interns back at that time in 2014, I think I've, I, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe every one of those guys had a master's degree in exercise physiology. They might have um, so, it was a pretty stout class. Some really bright guys. I think Christian Wonders was in that group as well. He was, who's, for sure. Who's come a long way um, through the network as well. Um, but honestly, training at CSP, it, it immediately lit a lit a fire in me that I didn't know existed. Um, I'd done a little bit of coaching in the winter as a as a collegiate kid just to make some some money back home. Um, but I, the whole private sector, the the culture that was that was president at CSP was just something that I fell in love with. Um, so then, you know, that following spring I applied for the, the internship. This is early 15. You guys had just moved down to Florida. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I was a second or third intern class down there in the summertime. Yeah. Summer and 15 was,
0: the, was number three. Yeah. So,
1: I mean, spent the summer with cap and Shane and the entire staff and it was just, it was, it was incredible. It was, I'm glad that my first taste of, you know, Formal strength conditioning slash pitching development was at CSP because if I didn't um, go down that rabbit hole, if I you know googled the wrong thing, who knows where I would have ended up in the in the coaching spectrum. But no,
0: that's in short how I ended up, you know, here now. So I think uh, you know what's you you did a good job of dating that. You know, what I mean, talking about 2014 because the industry is not in 2014 what it is now. Right, we didn't Correct. have high-speed cameras. We didn't have the ability, you know, to to go and you know and quantify pitch metrics and things like that. I mean, you were working with with Matt Blake, who's now you know obviously our, our pitching coach of the Yankees. But you know, Matt was at that time very much kind of like first to market with a lot of the veto analysis and what he was doing in the private sector would be considered you know cutting edge by you know all thirty major league organizations at the time. So, did you have a sense like at the time that you were on the cusp of? you know, kind of like a a little bit of a pitching re- revolution? Were you too like novice at that point to maybe appreciate it that it was that much differentiated?
1: I think that I had like just this innate like gut feeling that it was something different. It was something really big. I mean, I, I, I'm i looking around the room and it's just the the total energy and the, the fact that I went from having a ton of arm pain to feeling no arm pain after a summer of just lifting weights. That was completely um, novel to me. Um, but as far as I don't think I fully appreciated it simply because I was so naive to the world. I was so green. Um, but hindsight's 2020, 20, but I'm, um, again, I, I look back reflectively, really thankful that I, I fell into your guys' lap in
0: that sense. So, so, you know, obviously you, you do that, you go back, you play baseball and then you yep. do a strength conditioning internship the, the following summer. So I'm curious, like how, how have those experiences you know, obviously you went the strength edition route thereafter and you know, we can talk a little bit about kind of the progression, but how did that experience, you know, eventually allow you to connect the dots between, you know, predominantly strength edition and now you're you're really exclusively pitching? What was the what was the thing that allowed you to to draw those those parallels?
1: Well, luckily as a uh, as an intern, I was able to kind of immerse myself into both worlds. So I, I spent um my mornings during the internship throwing with guys. And I think like, I, I really credit Cap to taking me under his wing at that point in the game. Um, but I, I was able to see both sides of the coin right away coming out of college um, and, and kind of immerse myself in appreciation for just general movement, whether it be like what a hinge is supposed to look like, what a squat should look like, how guys should move around on one leg, um, what rotational power could, should look like from the sense of medicine ball throws and throwing. And being able to kind of connect the dots between the two, um, I think that diving deep into like assessment protocols was something that, from a pitching standpoint, I didn't really know how impactful it would be on the front end. But again, with years and years of doing this, I, I don't think you can separate the two worlds at all, and the synergy between the two is is what sold me on CSP as an athlete and as an intern, and and now I mean it's it's 100 the reason I'm here now. Is is because I can look, I can talk to guys that understand. You know, hey, somebody's struggling to get to their their glove side with a fastball. Well, let's peek at T spine rotation. Let's see how their scaps move. Let's talk about all those those different intrinsic things and see if we can piece this thing together as a team. Versus, you know, a a pitching coach that doesn't ever get exposed to strength conditioning is looking at this through the lens of I'm just going to spin my wheels with mechanical cues and adjustments when you know, sometimes there's a a much easier and efficient answer. So I think that that was something that was huge for me is is just learning how an appreciation for the assessment side of the spectrum and the the general movement side of the spectrum can make the adjustments on the pitching side a little bit more refined, a little bit more intentional.
0: I've always said that it's, it's an easier path to take a pitcher and teach him strength and conditioning than it is to take a strength edition coach and teach him pitching. And and the reason is it's very simple. It's context, right? Because when you've pitched or, and even, you know, to some degree served as a pitching coach, everything you pick up in the weight room, it's, it's a, progressive aha moment that's why i couldn't get into that pitch or that's why i couldn't execute you know whatever it was, i was trying to do and you just don't get the same things if you if you come from a strength edition background and someone teaches you how to hold a four seam it doesn't really like resonate with you in a in a special way w- would that be your agreement as well that that oh, I, was the way to do it i
1: 100 percent agree and i mean it's it's funny i, I was talking I, I it's blanking on me who i was speaking with this about earlier but it's it's funny to me that like the word hinge is all of a sudden something that's groundbreaking in the pitching scope. You know, and, and we're coming at this from an angle of strength coaches where it's like, well, that's a foundational movement pattern. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden it's it's you hear pitching coaches and pitching Twitter especially where it's it's uh it's a conversation piece again, which is a good thing, right? But mm-hmm. I think that it just goes to where the gaps were and where the gaps still are from a an S&C, uh, a
0: medical uh, just integration on a grand scale. Yeah, so, uh, you know I'm going to kind of fast forward a little bit, and you know there's a tendency for a lot of young coaches to get overzealous with making adjustments. Um, but if there's one thing I've noticed, you know, I've, I've known you obviously from afar, and then obviously for the last you know six weeks or so in, in person, much more regularly, you have a very pensive slash patient way about you. So I guess you know this is a, a necessarily vague question. How do you know when to stay conservative versus pushing forward the tinker? And, and to give you some context, like I, I think one of the things that's interesting is we really don't know what perfect mechanics are, right? Like there's there's so many different Correct. ways to be deceptive, to create movement, to create velocity. And Ben Hanson was a previous guest who said, you know what, most of the time mechanical optimization is about improving performance. We don't, we don't really know what keeps guys healthy, you know, as much as we think we do. So I'm always fascinated when Pitching coaches are adamant that you need to make an aggressive mechanical change when they're, you know, sometimes there are ways you can improve somebody physically, all that. So I I guess, you know, for you personally, uh, how do you know when to stay conservative, you know, with a a mild tinker, if at all, versus, you know, something that, that might warrant a more substantial overhaul?
1: Yeah, I think that this conversation starts just by simply looking at previous year's success. You know, if 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 guys are if guys are rocking and rolling and they have plus stuff, whether it be you know velocity, command stuff, um, I don't think mechanical overhaul is something that should ever be encouraged in that situation. I think it also, I it always drove me nuts as a as a player when I would first, you know, I, I went, I transferred. To a school and I had three different pitching coaches and every year it was like there was a little bit of a different message and the message was instantly sent my way um, before the coach even knew who I was or ma- what made me work. So I think that there's a little bit of a a learning curve to understand what makes an athlete tick. That could be from a mindset standpoint, just a coachability standpoint, um, a physicality standpoint, or even just like mental fortitude. Like I think that there's, it takes a lot of feel as a coach to understand which athletes can accept that, which athletes are a little bit more cerebral and they can Mm -hmm. handle the information and and which kids can't. Um, I think if you take an athlete that's, you know, and and this was something that in the Midwest was not super uncommon with a lot of the smaller towns, but I played college ball with guys that never had a pitching lesson before they ended up in collegiate Mm -hmm. baseball. And they were so externally focused to just blow the glove up and throw hard that as soon as you start trying to talk to them about mechanics and they become a little bit more internally focused they could tend to struggle a little bit when it comes to command or having the right mindset or you name it. So I think in those situations, like tinkering doesn't make a ton of sense, but I do think tinkering makes sense. If an athlete has professional baseball desires with average to below average stuff, um, the, with, with technology on the forefront, I think that the the gap's going to become larger and larger and larger between the guys that can take the information and the guys that can't. So if you, if you naturally don't, have plus velocity command or stuff. Um, I think that it's it's time to get to work. It's time to try some things. It's time to get it's time to get creative. I also think that there's something to be said for encouraging tinkering when an athlete struggled a little bit, or if if we've looked at the analytics and let's say that somebody does need to make an adjustment with pitch usage. I mean, I think that that's something that's a, l- a little bit less daunting as far as the adjustment for the athlete, but I think that it could still be profound when it comes to, you know, how small the gap is between good and great at the professional level. Um, yep. There's something to be said also for taking chances with guys that just have nothing to lose. I mean, yeah. if you're a 22 year old kid and you're telling me that you want to make one more ch- one more go at professional baseball, um, we can get creative. We can try some things, whether it be weighted ball throwing or I mean, you name it. At that point. Um, but this whole conversation comes down to having feel as a coach. Um, but, and I also, I'd like to add just, if you're going to recommend any kind of an adjustment with a a professional athlete or a higher end athlete that has had success and believes in what he's doing at a really high level, (laughs) you definitely better do your homework because these athletes are becoming more and more educated day by day. And if, if you are just throwing something at the wall and hoping that they'll buy into it and think that you're a genius, um, a lot of athletes are going to read through that pretty quickly and sift through that. So,
0: you know, I think we also forget that, like, when we hear this word "tinker." Like, the automatic assumption is that we're talking about the delivery, right? Yeah. But um, Kevin Armini is a, a real good friend of mine. He was a pitching coach at Kennesaw State for a while, and he came up and shattered us in, in Mass, probably in two thousand seven, two thousand eight. We were really new, and I, he said, you know, every passing year. I think of myself more as a manager of pitchers than I do as an actual pitching coach. It's mo- so much more about how we plan out the week, how we select the right drill work, all these different things than it is just about coaching mechanics. So, yep. I, I mean, w- when I hear the word tinker you know, it could very easily be an adjustment to a, you know, an overall training routine. It could be, you know, the removal of like systemic fatigue. It doesn't have to just be this mechanical thing because as we alluded to earlier, like that's the single most debated part of this whole pitching concept is, is, you know, are these mechanics optimal for your body? Why would you change that when you know, there's, there's other stuff, Hey, this guy's sleeping four hours a night and drinking too much alcohol. Like let's, let's focus on the low hanging fruit for sure.
1: I think it's really easy to look at all those things in isolation and think that it's an easy answer, you know, whether it be on the analytics side or, or even on the, the mechanics side, right? I think that it's hard to factor in at times, you know, well, did this guy's girlfriend just break up with him? Is, is he going through some stuff with his family? I think that having that, that bird's eye view really helps um, keep everything in perspective. And it, it makes me more cautious as a coach to, um, you know, being – Quick on my toes as far as making adjustments. Um, I I really want to have full context before diving in and giving advice. So,
0: I I think there's a there's also an aspect of this, you know, and there's a million questions you can ask about whether an athlete should should change something. Right? Have they been hurt? Have they been ineffective?
1: You know, are they are they
0: novice enough to to pick it up quickly? is there a way we can test the waters like in a minimum effective dose to see if it works? Maybe that's like a, you know, constraint based model or something like that. But I think the one that I, I come back to the most is how can you involve the athlete in the decision making process with respect to those modifications? In other words, like how do you get buy-in for them so that they're wildly confident? Because if they go into it, second guessing, whatever it is, inherently it's going to fail before you even you know, attempt it. For sure. For sure. Um, so Kind of building all this. Do these? Does this approach change at different times of year? Right. Like I, I think we've had some really good dialogues about. You know, I have a Massachusetts background. You have a, a Kansas City background. It's it's much easier to develop high school arms in those areas where there's a, mm-hmm. a, real, a relatively standardized calendar. You're, you're down in Florida now. Like, do the conversations have to you know really, you know, be governed by by what the competitive calendar looks like?
1: hundred percent. And I mean, just to play devil's advocate, I think that if like, if we are talking about a Midwestern kid or a, a Northern or Northeast part of the country where, you know, October through February is allocated to development mm-hmm. or to an off season or to another sport for that matter. Um, I think that like, at least the way that I've, I've prioritized the calendar year in the past, I think that early off season off season or September through November during a pro off season is a little bit more tinker heavy or you know, late October through Thanksgiving would be a little bit more tinker heavy if tinkering is deemed necessary from a mechanical lens. Um, early off season, it, it's a, it's a good opportunity to work on pitch grips. If you are going to make any kind of mechanical adjustments, I think that it, it makes a little bit more sense early in the process because as throwing starts to ramp up and we start to really prepare for bullpens, I think that it's important to just neurally groove things to where they become almost second nature. Um, and I think it's important to to shift from a little bit more of an intrinsic focus to a little bit more of an extrinsic focus when it comes to playing catch and executing and, and being a pitcher in the truest sense of the word. Um, so i find myself that like late in the year, we, I'm rarely doing anything as far as large overhaul or tinkering. Um, because by this time of year, I just think that the priority should shift, whether it be, you know, squaring away some things in the weight room or executing pitches in a bullpen and, and talking about mindset i just think that the the scope of what i would want to do with somebody does absolutely change throughout the year and it's in florida you got to get a little bit more creative just simply you already alluded to this but where there is no off season it's you have to be very very
0: tactful with this and yeah with you when you talk about like you know we kind of just highlighted the um the geographic differences, but like, you know, unique demands, obviously like Florida kids get more competition than they know what to do with, right. They can, mm-hmm. they can, they can round up, and like pick up baseball if they want to, but you know, with your, with your Kansas city guys, your warmer weather climates, um, you know, what are the, what are the gaps that you need to fill in the cracks on? Cause we both know you can be an elite player in Kansas city and, and wind up with like 35 innings on the year. If you're not careful between like getting snowed out, you know, maybe being on a team yep. that's not very good, you miss the postseason. Then you go to summer ball, and it's this like one inning a week showcase circuit. Um, and before you know it, you're you're six months deep on the season. You've only actually thrown in thirty five innings.
1: I think fostering competition indoors is something that you have to get really creative with. And a lot of like when I was in Kansas City operating at KCSC, um, we did that. I mean, it was it was live abs. we we'd foster competition in any way that we could. It, it's funny. I, I was down here. And I think it was the second week of of working in Florida, and there was a 12 year old talking about you know throwing a a 12-6 curveball off a high heater. <laughs> it's like the the baseball IQ of these kids that are playing year round. It's it, it's on a different level from the kids in the Midwest at 12 years old. I'm not saying I'm not taking a shot at Kansas City or or Massachusetts in that sense, but there's there's a little bit of catch up that has to be played from a X's and O's standpoint. Now, from a physicality standpoint, I don't really necessarily think that, you know, like a, a Massachusetts athlete's going to roll out of bed looking at a whole lot different than an athlete in Florida. I think it comes down to just time in the trenches that uh, it really does benefit these athletes down here. So, and it's obviously a double-edged sword because I think we avoid a little bit more of the overuse stuff in the in the colder weather states and, and down here. Um, you have to be very cautious of that just kids, kids are already playing competitive games right now and it's January
0: 24th. So, Uh, so, you know, we, we talked a little bit about like this, this concept of kind of finding development wherever you possibly can, whether it's chasing more competition or, you know, changing the yearly calendar or looking at the mechanical side of things. But, um, I know you spent a lot of time with the Edgetronic camera and that's something Mm -hmm. that, you know, has, has been a, you know, useful addition to your, to your offerings. I'm curious though, you made one comment to me um, you know, I was asking you about it and you said that it usually didn't, uh, in most cases lead to an adjustment, but rather a reaffirmation. So can you, can you elaborate on that, that statement?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to kind of start by just saying that like, if adjustments are something that we deem necessary, I think that edgertronic video and, and Rapsodo and Trackman are incredibly profound in just shortening the learning curve. I mean, I can take an edgertronic camera video and, and show a kid exactly how I want a 12-6 curveball to look and pull out 10 comps for him to study and understand, um, whether it be taking a young athlete and and really highlighting what good spin should look like or good hand positions at release should look like. Because um, I think, I mean, I know as a, as a kid, I was completely naive to that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that can be very, very profound. but. I, and I think it's also crucial to just understand what leads to coming to the ball out of the hand in the first place. So whether it be global kinematics or requisite range of motion to get guys into good positions or back hip loading mechanics, uh, timing rhythm, just general overall athleticism that lead to that, that small little video that we're looking at. um, I think that we can't ever lose sight of that. I think I made a post about that last week. Um, But when it comes to, edgertronic video, we are looking at such a very sol- small snapshot that I don't necessarily think that just queuing ball out of the hand all day long is going to get us where we need to go. Um, however, I do think that there's there's massive value in taking edgertronic video of athletes on a, on a really good day. So if, the, if their stuff's really clicking and we've got the camera out, I want to get a, a little bit of a, a snapshot, for lack of a better term, of of all of their stuff. Um, because if things ever fly off the rails throughout the year, we've got something to lean into to number one, reaffirm that they've already done it before so they can do it again. Um, but number two, if, if they're not getting spin that they desire out of the baseball, it's easy for us to go back to that, that video to kind of reverse engineer and connect the dots to get them back to where they need to be, um, I think that there's also value in tracking athletes um, on edge or over time to compare longer term adjustments. So whether it be an athlete that's never trained at CSP that comes in and gains a ton of range of motion and strength, I want to see over time how that affects ball out of the hand. And if, if we're taking an athlete that's super loose and creating some, some stiffness, is that adjusting the way that breaking balls are spinning or, you know, change-ups are
0: getting executed. I think that there's, there's massive value there. So where do you see folks going wrong with the use of high speed cameras? Like where, you know, it's, it's not always perfect because we do see people that get into, you know, into bad places with them. Yeah. I think that
1: like, I I alluded to this a little bit uh, just a second ago, but I think like not understanding global kinematics, Mm -hmm. I think that guys that look at edutronic video and and it's such a small little snapshot of of the ball coming out of the hand, um, giving all of your recommendations based on that small little window um, it's, it's kind of doing the athlete a disservice because I think that at the end of the day, we've got to appreciate range of motion. I think we have to appreciate stiffness. I think we have to appreciate general athleticism and, and you know, how well the athlete repeats their delivery. Like if you've got a 14 year old kid, that's mechanics look different every time he pitches and you're, you're leaning into like an edutronic camera to make massive adjustments with him. Um, you might set the camera up in the same place for every, every bullpen and Miss his arm in the frame completely on a (laughs) a bad day. So, um, I also, I I mean, it's, it's, it goes back to like expecting a, a loose and or weak hypermobile pitcher to be able to watch poor execution of a, a breaking ball in slow motion and magically create this, the tension that he needs to spin it the right way. Um, so I think it comes back to just appreciating anatomy. And I, I go back to just being able to lean into that initial evaluation and ask questions to the right people, whether it be, you know, going to Shane, um, or going to Schoenberg and Tanner or or you guys, it's something that's incredibly
0: valuable in our, in our scope right now. I think it always comes back to you. Like you have all this technology, whether it's actually, you know, ball tracking, you know, the the high speed camera, any of that stuff is, it, it always needs to drive some kind of intervention. You know what I mean? How, how do you get the athlete to fix themselves, right? Because we, yep. we can say, all right, your, your supination stinks. We're going to have some soft tissue work for you, and your yep. supination is going to get better, and hopefully it'll magically lead to a better breaking ball. But I, I think it always comes back to, like, what's the intervention that makes the athlete take ownership of it and, and actually create some kind of lasting change that's both demonstrable in terms of those outcome measures that they're hanging their hat on, but also, you know, something that's sustainable over an extended period of time. Absolutely. And I think
1: even from, like, a biomechanics standpoint, I think that number one, like getting an initial snapshot and then having that conversation of just like, Hey, this is where we're at right now. And this, these are the resources at our disposal and this is where we're going to take you. I think that's, I mean, that's what sold me as an athlete to come to CSP in the first place is it was the, it was the plan to get me number one out of pain and number two, performing at a higher level. And I I think that pitch design biomechanics, I mean, you name it, all of those things come back to that. What is the intervention? What is,
0: what's the plan here? So here- I'm going to jump ahead. This is going to be one of my lightning round questions, but I think it it fits well here. So, when yeah. you look at all these magic toys that you have at your fingertips, like w- what which of them would you have utilized the most to help Matt Hankley circa 2014 as a pitcher? I mean, obviously we talked about getting healthy being the most important thing, but describe yourself as a as a pitcher and how you would utilize a lot of these these resources to have made yourself better.
1: So I was kind of that
0: like that
1: naive kid coming out of high school that just had a, a little bit of a power arm and a pretty good breaking ball. And I didn't really know what I was doing, but I, the the ball tended to miss barrels. So I, I had a lot of success in high school and found my way into pretty successful colleges. Um, but you know, after changing some, some things from a strength standpoint and going to several different pitching coaches over a, a very small window, Matt Blake, um, Ron Woolforth, I mean, I, I was exposed to quite a bit in a very short amount of time. Um, I don't think I was equipped from a, a filter standpoint to be able to utilize what, what I really did well with and not be able to push aside the bad information. So I think if I could go back and talk to, you know, 20-year-old Matt Hinckley, I think I would have told him to have a better filter for information. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think from a technology standpoint, like if somebody sat down and really talked to me about how to chase certain spin directions and how to utilize the edgertronic camera to elicit the movement that I wanted, I think it could have saved me. Because my last two years, I, I struggled to spin the baseball. I, I kind of lost my slider, which was a put-away pitch for me for a really long time. And uh, even at the Division Two level where I was playing, if you're a one- or two-pitch guy and you don't have a plus pitch in that mix, it's you're going to have a long day. Um, and I kind of paid for that, my, my senior year, just a little bit, um, arm felt great, but I just kind of lost that like proprioception for spinning the baseball the way that I, I needed to, to execute. And I think that I could have, I I think that I could have made the adjustment before things got too carried away. Had
0: I had the, uh, the resource there. So interesting. Um, so let's dig in a little bit on the mental side of pitching. Um, yeah. You know because I know it's something you dedicated yourself to pretty heavily maybe it's just the the left handed guy in you or maybe it's just a function of, of dealing with so many different athletes in different geographic realms. but you know where do you find these discussions going with with pitchers these days what are the what are the key conversation pieces with you know both the the younger and more advanced athletes that you're working with? yeah, so I think like from a an
1: overarching like ideal standpoint, I think that with this increase in technology and this increase on physically we're learning a heck of a lot more about pitchers and we're learning a heck of a lot more about spin. We're learning a lot more about how to create certain pitches. Um, I think it's really important to also keep in mind the mental side of the game as a coach and as an athlete, um, as you're navigating development in and of itself. Um, But when it comes to the actual mental game, I've some of these guys have been around the block a super long time and I'm going to, I'm going to throw their names out here, but I, I think that the principles that they've kind of, hammered home still register today um one of the most impactful guys in in my neck of the woods as far as the mental game is a guy named brent chemnitz who was a a long-time pitching coach at wichita state um he's actually released a few different materials about the the mental game another one would be brian kane um for brian kane peak performance and then um as of late i i've i read 90 Percent mental by bob Tewkesbury and i mm-hmm. i really found a lot of uh giant takeaway pieces that I think I could um, armor guys with as a coach nowadays. So, um, when it comes down to mental toughness, I think for me, it comes down to a few really, really basic principles as a coach. Mm-hmm. Um, number one, I think that understanding that there's a learning curve, whenever you're making something, you're making an adjustment or introducing anything new to an athlete, typically there's, and I found this, um, as a coach over the last several years, is if you introduce something new to an athlete, the day of, they typically will have like instant initial success. And I don't know, I can't objectively express what I'm getting at here, but it, when I've I've thrown a new cue at an athlete, instantly it works. And I'm the greatest coach in the world. Um, more times than not, that's preceded by a little bit of failure. Um, sometimes the athlete goes backwards in a little bit of a sense. So I think just appreciating that like change is hard for any athlete because they've, they've grooved these patterns for a really long time or they've, they've thrown one way for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, it, it comes back to the the whole mantra of I don't want to overhaul a pitcher or make giant changes until that athlete fails or seeks change. Um, I think that if it, I allude this to some problems in professional baseball and I've, I've worked with some guys over the year where, you know, they'll get drafted and, you know, go into pro ball really confident in what they're doing. You know, the first day they're they're having their their pitch grips tinkered with, um, and all of a sudden they go out and struggle, and then it's the pitching coach's fault, and the wheels start spinning. Um, so I think that we have to be very very tactful. Of that I also think that it's as a coach it's important to work off of positives. So anytime an athlete does something that you're you know in favor of complimenting the good, um, and then if you're ever going to adjust something or you want to make a recommendation i think it's important to have like a positive negative positive model So Mm -hmm. when i coach like let's say like okay i love the way you competed today you went out there you threw great however like mechanically it looked like you were pulling a little bit with your glove side late i think if we clean that up you're going to have a lot more success later in the game commanding to your extension side or being able to get that glove side fastball where you need to get it um so just you know starting with something positive sprinkling in the coaching queue and then going back to something positive i think that it it keeps things in a positive manner when you're talking to the athlete versus like, look, your your breaking ball is awful, your mechanics stink, and your hip shoulder <laughs> separation is brutal. I'd walk away from that conversation going, okay, well, I found out that I'm terrible. <laughs> so, um, I also think that, and we're lucky in the sense that as CSP, but as a coach, it's important to be able to connect athletes with guys that have been in the trenches or have a similar makeup. I think that it ends up being like just something that they can mentally and verbally vet to. Um, whenever they go through tough times mm-hmm. and when it comes to being a player, I think being mentally tough, I think it, it comes from having this internal fortitude of like understanding what makes you special as an athlete. Are you a guy that relies on nasty movement? Are you just a fierce competitor? Um, I think like clearly defining that in an internally and, and visualizing success daily is, is huge. I think it's super easy, especially in this social media ridden world to get down a, a really, really negative rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Um, so having these things of, you know, your, your positive self-talk that acts as almost an anchor to bring you back to a good place. Um, it's hard, pitching's hard enough. And when you're in a negative headspace, I think that it's really, really tough to pull yourself out. Um, another mantra that I think a player should, should live by is, you know, every day you practice, you're either going to leave better or worse. You're never going to leave the same. And this is something that Brent Kemnitz really hammered home. Um, so each day when an athlete shows up, I don't care if it's phase one of an off season and they're playing light catch three days a week. I think it's really important that they have a plan that their need, that there's an intent with everything they're doing, whether it be, you know, going through a, a warm up on the strength conditioning side or playing catch with intent or executing lifts with really, really specific intent. I think it's super easy, especially when it comes to selling, um, some of the arm care exercises that we, we give kids that we prescribe kids. They're not necessarily the most fun exercises in the world. (laughs) They're not going to get a ton of likes on Twitter, but they're really profound if they're done the right way for a really long time. Um, So I think that if you believe in your plan, it's really, really easy to go that route. Um, When it comes to pitching in and of itself, I think that one of my favorite mantras is just having confidence at the end of the throw and baseball people understand this, but when you play catch with somebody and you, you catch the ball and or you throw the ball, you like, you doubt it, it gets turned around or your partner knows that you're not throwing it with confidence. Um, when you deal, you, you have a clear mind. You're not really thinking about a heck of a a whole heck of a lot. You're not thinking about your mechanics, outside opinions, anything. You're just, you're being confident and you're letting your arm work. Um, and this comes with having a really like relaxed intensity on the mound. So when I'm working with pitchers, I want to, I want to make sure that the guys are are fired up. They're, they're competitors, but at the same time, you can't take like a special teams approach to the the pitching mound, or else you're going to be a absolutely coined a one inning guy. Um, pitching comes with loose, free, and easy movement, and more times than not, if you're if you're muscling up and you're getting too big on the mound, that can that can lead to some erratic misses and tiring out really quickly. Um, and the final point that I want to make here, final two points I want to make here, is just when you're really, really deeply concentrated, I think that it, it helps eliminate tension on the mound. So the more locked in you can be, the harder it is to be nervous. And I think that if you're concentrated and you're confident you're gonna be mentally tough on the baseball field. Um, and I, the last thing that I like try to I try to bring this energy into the cage when I'm working with pitchers. Um, baseball's a game and I think sometimes we forget that. Um, having a little bit of like a little league mentality um it keeps things fun and I, I i make the point all the time it's like when you're playing in your backyard it's 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 pretty hard to miss your because you're so relaxed baseball's easy whenever you don't care and i i say that with intent of when you have that that loose free and easy mindset like you're just playing in your backyard with your buddies mm-hmm. you tend to do some pretty athletic things it's true um so honestly, like when it comes down to the mental game, I, I, you can't separate the physiological. It's really hard to be a confident guy. If you, if you don't have the stuff, but at the same time, if you stay, if you have the stuff, if you, if you believe in your process from a physical standpoint um, and mentally you're, you're doing whatever you need to do from a visualization standpoint, from a a process standpoint, I think it can go a long way to, to keeping you in a good
0: headspace. So. I think, um, you know, we touched on it a little bit earlier. This this concept of being a pitching manager more than a pitching coach. Um, I, I think some of the stuff you just outlined is is vital in that regard as well. As you know, you know you can you can trust your preparation. That, that's always something you can fall back on. I, I remember Justin Blood when he was at the University of Connecticut making that same um, you know kind of point at, at uh, you know the world there the baseball uh, coaches convention at Mohegan Sun years ago. But I'm curious if you had to, to outline your ideal competitive calendar. You know, for a 15 year old athlete looking to improve as a pitcher, like wh- where do you start? Like, what's the what's the discussion when you have with that that you know player as well as you know his parents?
1: Yeah, I think that like it, it's important to be number one, have a conversation because it's and we we had this conversation a little bit ago. But if, if you're a kid in the the Midwest, you've got the clearly defined offseason more times than not. If you're a kid in Florida, we have to number one have that conversation. Is is fall ball going to happen? Are um how many games you're going to be playing this summer so on and so forth but let's just say for the sake of the example that we're speaking to a kid that is playing in the summertime and is considering fall ball and playing for a school and that's it um if that 15-year-old athlete were to come to me um let's say at the end of a summer in you know late July early August I would encourage at that point in in the game a little bit of a shutdown so whether it be you know, four to eight weeks. If if they're an athlete that has a lot of hypermobility and they they keep, continue to gain range of motion as they throw, um, I think that like a little bit of a longer break period makes a little bit more sense at that point in the game. Um, now, if, if an athlete is is we deem that they're really stiff and they want to lightly catch play catch, I'm okay with that. Um, but I would I would recommend that on the front end, um, some type of of shutdown, whether it be stone cold shutdown or just a light catch like active shutdown where they're playing catch a couple times a week without really gassing it up a whole lot. Um, but in a perfect world, I honestly think that we'd treat our, our high school athletes in a similar light to our pro athletes from a workload management standpoint. So that like August to September timeframe during the early off season, um, if I can get a kid convinced to not play fall ball, which I know down here is going to be a, a, a much different chore than it was back in Kansas city because it's, you know, you're talking about playing in 30 degree weather with sleet. That's a little (laughs) bit of an easier sell to convince somebody not to play versus down here where it's sunny and 75 every day. Um, But when we're first starting to throw again in uh, the beginning of an on-ramp, I would recommend like three times a week of throwing with rest days snuck in between at a lower intensity. Um, That second phase. So like that September to October range, um, this would be still that like three to four times a week of throwing um, this is where we'd get a little bit more drill heavy with mm-hmm. the tinkering um, and it, the, the intensity starting to creep up a little bit more towards a moderate. Um, when it comes to that, that third phase of so that October through Thanksgiving, I think that you can sneak in a little bit of a, a mini deload prior to this phase, just to give the, the body time to prepare itself for what's going to come in the next few phases, because that third phase um, I, I like to bump guys up to four times a week of throwing at the high school age. Mm-hmm. Um long toss programs typically start at this point. Um this is when you'll see a lot of uh facilities across the country doing a lot of pull downs, things along those lines. Um intensity is still like moderate to high. Um that November-December time frame on that, that fourth phase, um throwing volume continues to increase, weight room volume would con- start to taper, and uh this is uh where focus would shift a little bit more to high intensity a couple times a week, but the focus starts to shift its way a little bit more towards being on the mound and touching the slope. Um, When you creep near Christmas, I think that it's important to sneak another deload. in. this is something that early in the process, I, I don't, I can, you know, honorably admit that I wasn't doing enough of when I was working with the high school kids back in the day is just sneaking in deloads over that, that buildup phase. Mm-hmm. Um, because those December through January throwing programs get pretty intense as kids are chasing, whether it be, you know, velocity gains or, you know, they, it's the popular most popular time of year, I think the, for velo PR, so on and so forth. Um, and you're starting to get on the mound. So it's just really important to number one, educate athletes on listening to their body. And number two, Understand that a deload is probably necessary around that Christmas time, and a lot of kids travel anyway during that phase or during that that time period. So, typically works pretty well. Um, that January through February timeframe, throwing volume typically is getting pretty high at that point. Where most kids are throwing around six days a week with a couple pins a week. Um, if they're a, if they're a bullpen guy, two you know lower volume, high intent pins make more sense to me. If a, if a kid's a starter, I would encourage more of like a light pin and then a heavier pin later in the week. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all about preparing for high school tryouts. So intensity creeps back up. And then as the high school season starts in February or March, um, we would uh, maintain that same two times a week approach on the mound with a couple moderate days sprinkled in. And then we generally want at least one full off day week all year and during the competitive season there are kids and it i i hate speaking in general terms here because it does depend a lot on the athlete and then the requisite stiffness and so on and so forth but I, i do think it's important to sneak in some rest even if it is just one day a week to let the body recover a little bit um then that may through june as high school baseball is wrapping up i think it's important to kind of look back and gauge the workload currently and, and check out the inning count. If they're a kid that goes into the spring high school season and they're 45, 50 innings in, I think that creating a really, really intentional plan for the summer um, becomes super important. If they're a kid that throws 15 to 20 innings during the spring, um, summer balls, where they're going to be, you know, getting a lot of their workload in. Um, and then as they, they creep into that June, late July, early August time fa- phase, I encourage them to enter another shutdown mode and then we we restart the calendar from there um things do get a heck of a lot more complicated when you do have that that year-round competitor Mm -hmm. um, the warm weather kid that just is is competing all year long and i think that the most important thing in that sense is just educating kids on number one i think tracking like total workload throughout the year from an inning standpoint and then number two um sneaking in the deloads whenever
0: you can because um, there are breaks built in. Yeah. You know what's interesting is, and I want to get your take on this, you know, I've, we've done the deload stuff with high school guys on the weight room side of things and I mm-hmm. feel like that stuff almost always takes care of itself, right? It's family vacations or, yep. you know, they, they miss a couple days because they've got a big test at school. There's There's something where... You know, they get sick, whatever it may be. There's, you know, obviously in the era of COVID, there's been, you know, shutdowns for various reasons in that regard, you know, close contacts. The the deloads always seem to happen on their own, but the throwing stuff, they always seem to get in. And and I, I think it's vitally important to deload on the throwing stuff, whereas the strength addition stuff, I'm, I'm kind of okay with guys just powering through it because they're just, they're so adjustable. Um, they always yep. seem to make progress, particularly when they're young and novice, but, um those mini breaks, as you noted, I think can be so important on the actual skill development side of things. Absolutely. And I mean, perfect plan on paper, always gets
1: derailed. I mean, there's kids will get sick, kids will go on vacation. I mean, there's, there's always something that comes up, especially with that high school demographic. And I, uh, that's, that's why we always say, I think it's the old adage of we write in pencil, not pen and not being married to not being so married to the plan that you, uh, you know, psychologically
0: get thrown off if you have to modify some things. Yeah. Um, You know, I think one other observation, I'm curious to get your take on this. You know, I remember seeing this all the way back in like 2010, that summer, we we had a bunch of kids playing area codes and it was kind of a prep to a big draft year for a lot of Massachusetts kids in 2011. We had several kids who just had like almost like one week recharges. Like it was kind of during that crazy summer travel calendar where they came in and they you got some home cooking, they got three or four lifts in, you know, someone put on five or six pounds in that. And then they come back out and see a big velo jump. And I, I always wrestled with, was it just that like they needed to gain a little bit of weight back to get back to where they needed to be? Was it that they just got a little bit of a break from competitive throwing, whatever it was, but like time and time again, I've seen these kind of instances of, you know, five to seven day blocks. You see it like, you know, a high school player whose team stinks and, you know, doesn't go into the postseason, So they get like a two week break before summer ball. And, there's always like a recharge. It just, it, to me, it speaks to like the the trainability of of high school kids. Like you don't get that in pro guys. Like if anything, you give them a week off and they feel horrible. Whereas like younger guys, just they find like these opportunities to rebound so quickly.
1: Absolutely, and I think it's just like they're they're hyper responders to everything. And during that that time, right? I mean, you can eat like crap and still gain a bunch of good weight. It's it's just yeah. it's that it's that lucky like natural steroid phase of
0: their life um, where, yeah, I a hundred percent agree. So, um, so we always try to do a lightning round on the end and I, I gave one of them away. I gave away my, look back. <laughs> how could Matt Hinkley in 2022 best help Matt Hinkley when he's younger, but I'm going to yep. give you some other ones. So first one, who are your favorite pitchers to watch?
1: Oh, it's hard for me to pick one. Let me, uh, I'll give you a list of four here real quick. Okay. Um, number one for me is Zach Greinke. Um, yep. He just gives me like Greg Maddox vibes. I think he's a guy that always threw a lot of strikes, changed speeds, and he's just steady Eddie. And actually, I met him back at Kauffman Stadium in, mm-hmm. in his rookie year. and Super nice guy. Spent some time talking to me, and I'll never forget that. Um, as a kid, I was I was super obsessed with Dontrell Willis. <laughs> I, I love the big leg kick and just the, the yeah. swagger that he threw with. Um, he always exuded a lot of confidence and had just a, a presence about him that was kind of always inspirational to me. Um, Randy Johnson's kind of along Mm -hmm. that same line there. I, I caught the tail end of his career, you know, from what I can recall as a a kid, always uh, a presence on the mound. And I respected that you'll notice, uh, three of the four guys on my list offer are are left handed. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, the last one was Tim Collins. Yeah. Um, I was a short lefty from Kansas city and and he gave me a lot of hope as an athlete. Um, I was like, it was always just super impressive to me that a guy with the frame that he had could.
0: Get out of his body. What he did—that's
1: um, always been super cool. Pre-
0: previous podcast guest too, with a with a good story to tell. So make sure you guys check that out if you haven't heard it. Yeah. And so actually, I'll build on that one since I used up one of my questions earlier. Of the pitchers that you've interacted with here since you arrived in Florida, yep. who do you feel like has had the most to teach you? I mean, just in conversation, and watching, and you, you've rolled with a lot of the big dogs. So I'm, I'm, yeah, you're allowed to play favorites here. Nobody will bust your chops about it.
1: Honestly, it's, it's, uh, oh man, that's a tough one. (laughs) I think it's guys like a
0: couple, talk about some good conversations
1: you had maybe. Yeah. So like a guy like Sean Gunther, Mm -hmm. so he comes in and a lot of the conversations that we have with him are just those old adages of when I'm sitting in the cage and I'm, I'm asking a kid to change his sights, whether it be to, to spin a breaking ball better or to get the breaking ball to land where he wants he he asked me a question the other day that got my wheels spinning a little bit. That was, you know, are you uh, are you uh, setting your sights on where you're you're gonna start the ball or where the ball is gonna land? And for me as an athlete, I was always just a kid that when I was queuing up, uh, you know, like breaking ball adjustments, it was always just change my sights on where I was trying to throw the ball. Um, and, and he got me to kind of look at that in a little bit of a different light. So that was super impactful. Um, guys like. Um, Oh, like Lou Trevino, like he's a guy that didn't know me from Adam and and came in on day one and and asked me questions regarding his, his delivery. And, um, you know, I I think that that was super impactful and being able to just chop it up with him on what I saw, what he saw. Um, and it's, it's simple things, honestly, when you're talking about, um, guys with that much, you know, time in the show, um, but something as simple as moving his hands back a few inches or moving his hands forward a few inches or you know the timing of when his hands are separating and how impactful that can be when it comes to the result of the pitch um that's been pretty impactful as well
0: good stuff good stuff um Um, uh, those guys will be super impressed the game shouts out and and gunther is on the list of guys to have because he was one of the coolest covid miss a year of minor league baseball development stories i was actually just pulling up while you were talking uh, max fastball yeah. velo in 2019 was 92.7. This year it was 95 even. So guy put on 2. Yeah. 2.3 ticks um, over the course of a year and a half and made, made a big league debut this year. So easy guy to well, celebrate and cheer for. And that's another guy that's like, you know,
1: he's not necessarily a gifted from a height standpoint and has found a way to, to pitch in the major leagues, which is just, I can always, I'm always going to bat for those
0: guys. So. <laughs> Good call. All right, so uh, let's talk about a, a must read book. For both a player and then one for coaches that are listening to this.
1: Oh, oh, so from a player standpoint, I I really like the book 90% Mental um, by Bob Tewksbury. Um, I just like the the fact that he's hammering home routines and there's just some really, really good baseball storytelling in there. Yeah, Um, I think that some of those things are can be super impactful for players. Just understanding that some of the best in the game go through exactly what you're going through, no matter what level you're playing at. Um from a coaching standpoint, I really like I this was a book I read um several years ago. It's just conscious coaching by Brett Bartholomew.
0: Yeah. Um it's a great one.
1: I think building buy-in is such an important thing. And I think environment and trust are everything personally. And I try to create an environment as a pitching coach that that would encourage buy-in and trust in me. Um again, it comes back to the old adage of like people don't really care what you know until they know that you care. Um I I, that book hammers a lot of those points home and it's a it's a
0: great book. So I love it. And then last but not least, this is a Wapuro question. What Uh to you is the next frontier in developing pitchers? What gets you excited? Where do you think we're gonna get substantially better in the, the years ahead?
1: So I think that just like global integration between all the different facets, whether it be player development and you know, the medical side or analytics and player development, I think that like as we learn more, I think the gap between all the different phases of development and just baseball in general are going to be closed. I don't think it's going to be enough to just be a pitching coach here going forward. I think you're going to have to know a little bit about strength conditioning. You're going to have to know a little bit about, um, you know, physical therapy and, and what massage therapists are doing with guys. I think that um, baseball in and of itself, from an integration standpoint, is just going to continue to, to blossom. Um, and this is something in, internally that cap elms mark and myself have been talking a lot about lately is just the wrist um, and understanding like different mobility requirements to execute execute certain pitches um so for instance like if if an athlete um is limited in an owner deviation and i'm trying to teach them a traditional changeup, and they continue to struggle um how, how how can i change my coaching strategy to get them to kill spin or speed um, more times than not, we're going to go to like a, a split change grip or something that would be a little bit more conducive to success there. But I think that just understanding kinematics from the elbow down is going to be something that we focus a little bit more of our attention on going forward.
0: Um, and I think we have a ton to learn in that regard.
1: Those are all
0: good points and stuff that and the wrist stuff fascinates me as well credit to, to cap for really getting my, my the wheels churn for turning for me a little bit on that um, absolutely so, Matt you've got an awesome social media presence on Twitter it's at I am Matt Hinkley um, and then on Instagram it's Matt underscore Hinkley underscore pitching and then you also have officially taken the reins along with Matt Elmire to the CSP Florida Instagram handle which is at CSPFL underscore pitching and that's a that's a wealth of highlights on a daily basis from our, our pro and college and high school arms. So lots of good stuff there. Um, can't thank you enough for coming on, man. There's lots of really good stuff here for parents and kids and coaches and, you know, folks from all different walks of life and points in development. So thanks for sharing your wisdom. Absolutely. I'm fired up to be down here and I'm, uh, I'm really enjoying it. It's been a lot of fun. So. Absolutely. All right. We will do this again soon and we're going to have to get you involved on a, on a future round table. Cause I know we'll, uh, we can round up some good troops to have a good discussion on, you know, we, we did two seam round table last time and we'll have to do cutter or change up or curveball or something. Oh, I'd love it. I'd love it. Bring it on. Sounds good. Thanks, bud. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP elite baseball development podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, We'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions. For future guests and questions, just email elitebaseballpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.